Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is September 18th, 2019, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is AFib of the Night, Chemical versus Electrical First Cardioversion. And our guest skeptic is Dr. Chris Bond. He is an emergency medicine physician and clinical lecturer in Calgary. He is also an avid FOMED supporter and producer through various online outlets, including the SGEM. Welcome back to the SGEM, Chris. Thanks, Ken. How was your Top Gun party? Oh, the Top Gun party was... It didn't achieve Top Gun status, but it was a great rehearsal for next year for Top Gun Maverick. And I know you're saving the date because it's an extra special date for you. Yeah, buddy. It's my birthday, and they know that I'm the biggest Top Gun fan out there, so they made a special movie just for me. Will you be wearing a flight suit to this party? I'll have to decide between flight suit, dress whites, or uh, khakis. We'll see which one anyway. <laughs> well, enough about Top Gun. Let's get right into the S-Gem, because it is hot off the press. So give us a case. All right. You have a 55-year-old male who presents to the emergency department with sudden onset of palpitations and presyncope starting one hour ago. He has no chest pain or shortness of breath, and aside from a heart rate of 140 beats per minute, the rest of his vital signs appear within normal limits. His past medical history is significant for hypertension, for which he takes perindopril. His ECG shows atrial fibrillation with a rapid ventricular response. Atrial fibrillation, as you know, Chris, is one of the most common, if not the most common, encountered significant dysrhythmia seen in the emergency department. And we've covered this topic a number of times on the SGEM. Yeah, the most recent episode looked at whether late cardioversion is non-inferior to early cardioversion. That was episode 260 in acute atrial fibrillation. The SGEM bottom line from that episode was that the late approach was non-inferior to the early approach and that both strategies achieve high rates of sinus rhythm at the four-week follow-up over 90% of the time. In uncomplicated patients with symptoms less than 48 hours and no stroke or TIA in the past six months, the Canadian Cardiovascular Society guidelines from 2018 permit rate or rhythm control. Despite this, there is significant variability in the management of patients with acute AF, with the proportion undergoing rhythm control ranging from 42 to 85% in Canadian academic centers. The rhythm control strategies typically employed are chemical cardioversion with procainamide or electrical cardioversion with electrical countershock. Both of these strategies appear safe from prior studies, but comparative effectiveness data is lacking. Thus, Canadian management varies greatly with 56% of patients receiving chemical first approach and 44% an electrical first approach. Chris, what's the clinical question we're going to try to address today? In emergency department patients with atrial fibrillation, is sinus rhythm achieved more rapidly with electrical first rhythm control when compared with chemical first rhythm control? And how about the reference? Schurmeyer et al., a multi-center randomized trial to evaluate a chemical-first cardioversion strategy for patients with uncomplicated acute atrial fibrillation from Academic Emergency Medicine, September 2019. All right, let's run through the PICO. What was the population? So they looked at adults between 18 and 75 years of age with AFib less than 48 hours duration and a CHADS-2 score less than 2. And there were a number of exclusions, and I'll list those in the show notes. How about the intervention? chemical cardioversion with procainamide, 
Yeah, and they used a dose of 17 milligrams per kilogram up to a maximum of 1,500 milligrams infused over one hour. This was followed by electrical cardioversion if the chemical cardioversion was unsuccessful. And what did they compare it to? They compared it to electrical cardioversion as the primary using a synchronized biphasic waveform sequence of 100 joules to 150 joules to 200 joules to a maximum of three shocks. And patients were sedated at the physician's discretion, and the study recommended using a propofol bolus, and a smaller bolus could be used until adequate sedation was achieved. This was followed by chemical cardioversion with procainamide if the electrical cardioversion was unsuccessful. All right, let's run through the outcomes. What was the primary outcome? The proportion of patients discharged within four hours of emergency department arrival. And the secondary outcomes? There were additional median time intervals, emergency department-based adverse events, and 30-day patient-centered outcomes. Well, I did mention earlier this is an SGEM hop episode, which means we have the lead author on the show, Dr. Frank Schumeyer. He is an emergency physician research director at St. Paul's Hospital in Vancouver, British Columbia. He is also the Associate Director of Research for the University of British Columbia, Department of Emergency Medicine, and the Cardiovascular Emergencies Lead for the British Columbia Emergency Medicine Network. Welcome to the SGM, Frank. Hello. uh, Thanks for having me on, both of you. So, Frank, before you did this trial, were you a chemical or an electrical converter? Not to be pedantic, but it's chemical first or electrical first. I went to med school in Edmonton and residency in Edmonton, and my first staff job was at Foothills. So until I actually was studying for my examinations, I didn't really hear about procainamide because in the West, everybody converts electrically first. It wasn't until later on that I found out that people actually use procainamide as first line very successfully. Uh, So I'd have to say I was an electrical first converter from uh, from the get-go. You're the exact same. Yeah, you're the exact same as me, Frank. I, I went to med school in Edmonton and then residency in Calgary, and procainamide was like a foreign concept that apparently existed in the Far East. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, funny when you talk with your uh, with colleagues from across the country and see exactly how different management is. So, Is this like an East Coast, West Coast thing? What are we talking about here? Definitely the East Coast, West Coast thing in Canada. <laughs> Well, when you look at the steel paper from 2011 Annals of Emergency Medicine, which is just a, a retrospective chart review of about eight academic centers, you find that as you drift from west to east, the uh, proportion of electrical first seems to decrease. And in some areas in eastern Canada, uh, rate control is still uh, used as almost first line for these patients, although we're hoping to change that now. But yeah, it seems to be almost institution and, and, and geographically dependent what, what you do first. Whenever you have a discrepancy in care like that, that's the good basis for doing a randomized trial. What did you conclude from this study before we start doing our critical appraisal? So uh, in uncomplicated emergency department patients with atrial fibrillation, both chemical first and electrical first strategies appear to be successful and well tolerated. Uh, However, an electrical first strategy results in a significantly shorter emergency department length of stay And uh, overall, our results should encourage clinicians to initially consider an electrical first approach for such patients. Thank you, Frank. All right, Chris, let's go through the quality checklist for RCTs. The first question is, are these study population patients emergency department patients? They certainly are. Were they adequately randomized? Yes. They used an online algorithm for block randomization into groups of four at each site in a one-to-one fashion. Was the randomization process concealed? Yes, it was. 
were the study participants analyzed in the groups to which they were randomized? Yes. Did they recruit the participants consecutively? No. Recruitment took place during time blocks when research assistants were available. So in some centers, there were no research assistants available after 8 p.m. or on weekends. The participants in both groups, were there similar with respect to prognostic factors? Yes, they were. Were the participants unaware of group allocation? No. Blinding of chemical versus something like sham electrical cardioversion would be extremely difficult. Were all groups treated equally except for the intervention? Yes. Was follow-up complete? It was. Do you think they considered all patient important outcomes? We do. And the final question, was the treatment effect large enough and precise enough to be clinically significant? Yes, it was. All right, let's run through those key results. Overall, they had 222 eligible patients that were screened and 84 were ultimately enrolled and randomized. The mean age was in the late 50s and more than a third were female and three quarters had a history of atrial fibrillation. Chris, give us the key result. One third of patients were discharged in four hours with chemical first cardioversion compared to two thirds in the electrical first group. Yeah, for that primary outcome, it was the proportion of patients discharged within four hours of ED arrival. What was the actual numbers? In the chemical first group, it was 13 of 41 patients, so 32% who were discharged within four hours, compared with 29 of 43 for 67% in the electrical first group. So this gives you an absolute difference of 36%, or a number needed to treat, of three. How about the secondary outcomes? The ED length of stay in the chemical first group was 5.1 hours versus 3.5 hours in the electrical first group. Another secondary outcome that they looked at was the first method converted. And they found that 54% of patients in the chemical first group converted versus 88% in the electric first group. The overall conversion rate in both groups was fantastic with 100% in the chemical first group and 42 of 43 patients for 98% in the electrical first group. All right, now I want to put in a warning. And this is for all the American listeners if you're driving your car, I want you to pull over right now. If you're standing up and listening to this, I want you to sit down. If you're on the treadmill listening to this while you're working out, I want you to stop the treadmill. Because I'm going to tell you what the discharge home rate was. It was 100% in both groups were discharged home from the emergency department. Absolutely amazing. All right, how about the adverse events? The chemical first group had 10 adverse events and the electrical group had 11 adverse events. All of these had minimal risk outcomes. And there were no strokes or deaths in either group at 30 days. The quality of life scores at three and 30 days were also similar for both groups across all domains. All right, Chris, Frank, time to talk a little nerdy. And we've got five questions for Frank to help us better understand the study. Now, Chris and I are gonna alternate back and forth and Frank, you, you can just jump in and respond to each question. Sound good? Sounds great. All right, question number one, consecutive patients. You did not have consecutive recruitment of patients. And recruitment depended on whether or not a research assistant was available. That often means in research studies, no nights, no weekends, and no holidays. This could have introduced some selection bias. How do you think it may have impacted your results? So from your note, it's only 8 of 135 eligible patients. 
of the six centers that we had, four of them recruited 24 hours, seven days a week, and two of them recruited essentially during uh, bankers hours. So we did probably miss a few. The question is, uh, are AFib patients showing up at nighttime different than those showing up daytime? And it's very challenging to say. I don't think anyone's looked at it. Uh, I'm not sure that would have impacted our results a, uh, a great deal. There is a selection bias, though, in that patients have had atrial fibrillation and conversion before. Often, they were more comfortable with their method. So the selection bias is probably that we had more patients with new onset atrial fibrillation than recurrent atrial fibrillation. A lot of times, patients would say, well, I've uh, been electrically converted five times previously. I would love to be near study as long as I'd be randomized to the electrical first group. So that's probably where the real bias happened if you look at uh, the, the patients that declined uh, to, to participate in the study. So it's biased toward patients with new onset AFib as opposed to, you know, having had AFib multiple times before. And to be clear, people can't randomize themselves into the group they want. That would blow the randomization. It's, it's one, yeah, I would violate a few principles of ethics, randomization, math, you know, Euclidean geometry, uh, but, you know, patients would... Uh, Patients have often requested to be in a certain arm of the trial, and this happens very commonly in, in, in randomized trials, that they already have a predisposed idea of what's going to work. And, of course, they have to say, sorry, uh, we can't randomize you if, you if you already have a preconceived notion of what's going to happen. Frank, I'm going to have to stop you there. They told me there'd be no math. Chris, go on to number two. So in this study, you guys did a little bit more than an ECG for each patient. So you encouraged physicians to obtain an ECG, a complete blood count, electrolytes, creatinine, TSH, troponin, and a chest x-ray on all patients. Do you recommend this in practice? Because with high-sensitivity troponins, wouldn't you obtain many intermediate elevations from the tachycardia if it was prolonged? That's a great multi-part question. So let's go back to the first part about uh, recommending a full medical workup on these patients. The reason we did this is purely for safety reasons. At the time we were doing this study, we were uh, had another manuscript coming out about patients with atrial fibrillation and underlying illness like sepsis or heart failure. Now, you'll notice one of the first things that we mentioned was that there's uncomplicated atrial fibrillation. So that's your 55-year-old after hockey practice in a couple of years. The trouble is, you know, physicians can get very enthusiastic with cardioversion. And uh, let's say you've got an 80-year-old who's more short of breath for, you know, 24 hours. They might get really enthusiastic about thinking that's the atrial fibrillation. But in fact, it's the heart failure. So we had to be as safe as possible. Our team published a manuscript stating that, you know, if you used rate or rhythm control in patients with an underlying illness, you know, let's see at atrial fibrillation and sepsis, atrial fibrillation, heart failure, atrial fibrillation, and uh, thyrotoxicosis, the, uh, the chance of a conversion is very low and your chance of adverse events is very high. And we really wanted to avoid that. So this was basically a way to check that the patients truly were not having anything else going on. The CAPE guidelines don't recommend this in patients with obvious low-risk atrial fibrillation, but we wanted physicians to be absolutely sure that they weren't accidentally enrolling patients who had you know, heart failure that wasn't getting picked up or, or pneumonia that wasn't getting picked up. So uh, that was just a safety check for that study. So I don't recommend it in practice. I would follow the new CAPE 2018 guidelines. Now, with high-sensitive troponins, that's also in the CAPE 2018 guidelines, you expect mild troponin elevations. Mild troponin elevations uh, can be discussed with your local lab or with your local cardiologist, but generally speaking, a high-sensitivity troponin you know, of 10, 15 is practically be expected after a few hours of, of, prolonged, of sinus tachycardia. A troponin of like 75, 80 high-sensitivity troponin, probably a little bit high, and that should probably be, should probably consider an acute coronary syndrome in this. 
Uh, so you do get these intermediate elevations. If the patient feels better and it's just the atrial fibrillation, then uh, I don't even think you need to draw a repeat troponin. The CAPE guidelines certainly don't call for that. All right, let's talk about exclusions then. You excluded patients over the age of 75. My good friend and Jerry EM guru, Chris Carpenter, may accuse you, Frank, of practicing ageism. Why did you exclude these older patients? Well, I'm a horrible ageist. That's the first reason. <laughs> no, the, uh, the, the, the main reason is that once you go over the age of 75, and it's not a firm barrier, but once as patients get older, they lose the ability to tell when they're in atrial fibrillation. And if you look at our data for patients, we actually use rhythm conversion on both from the Ottawa group and, and other studies, including ours. Only, you know, a handful of percent, less than 5% of patients have converted are over the age of 75. So it's mainly younger patients. And again, the same reason is that for question one, once patients are over 75, they have a much higher incidence of other medical illnesses, which would make, you know, electrical conversion or chemical conversion very, very risky to do. So if you have a you know eighty year old who's at you know six hours of being you know, in feels their atrial fibrillation, there's a good chance something you know, something in addition to atrial fibrillation is going on. So we put an artificial cap on that. Having said that, we had three protocol violations all at Lionsgate Hospital, and if you've been to Lionsgate, then the north in uh, North Vancouver, and you had eighty year olds that are busy cross country skiing that are ridiculously healthy. So seventy five was again just sort of a, a check to make sure that you know nothing else was going on. And we already know that very few patients that are converted are over the age of 75. The new uh, CCS guidelines, actually, uh, once a patient gets a score of a CHADS 2 or above, and that includes everybody over the age of 75, pretty much, we're very, very, very careful about uh, electrical or chemical cardioversion in those patients. And that's a new guideline from uh, 2018 in the Canadian Cardiovascular Society guidelines. So again, we're not trying to, we don't really mean to discriminate against these patients, but generally, A, they can't tell when they're in atrial fibrillation or can tell less well than younger patients and be a much higher chance of an underlying issue going on. Well, we look forward to hearing from Chris Carpenter after he listens to this episode and hear what he thinks about that. How about number four, Chris? The fourth question is about outcomes. One outcome we found interesting was the ER revisit rates at three and 30 days. The numbers weren't statistically significant, but for chemical versus electrical cardioversion, they were five versus one at three days and nine versus three at 30 days. Is there any literature to support a difference in recurrence rate for the two methods of cardioversion? So when I pull up an old study we did in uh, annals in 2012, the, the revisit rate is, doesn't seem to be higher for, for uh, chemical control versus electrical control. This could just be the tyranny of small sample size. If you extended the study to, you know, three or four times our size, these differences might vanish. I haven't seen this before, but it is, uh, it is interesting. But again, the numbers are really too small to draw any definitive conclusions. Speaking of outcomes, Frank, you changed your primary outcome. Originally, you had emergency department length of stay, and then this was changed to the proportion of patients discharged within four hours of emergency department arrival. Can you explain why you made this change to a dichotomous outcome? Well, it has to do with actually getting an education. Uh, initially, uh, I thought length of stay would be a great outcome, and uh, that's what I enthusiastically wrote up in the clinicaltrials.gov. And then after about two patients, I realized that this was going to be really, really challenging to, you know, to, uh, to get an accurate sample size on then you're, Once you use non-parametric outcomes like length of stay, which can have a rate, which are not normally distributed, you end up with things like hazard ratios and other complexities. So uh, we chose to make a, uh, a, a dichotomous outcome, uh, which makes the sample size calculation much, much, much easier. 
And, you know, I wish I'd done it two patients earlier because then I wouldn't have had to report it at clinicaltrials.gov. But as such, it just has to do with inexperience. I was fairly early in my research career when I started this, and it has to do with a lack of experience there. I think this is, if, if you're using a, an outcome like length of stay for your primary outcome, picking a, uh, a definitive cut point is probably better than just picking a length of stay, just because the calculation is much, much more difficult. There is nothing evil or ominous behind it, just an experience. And I hope you didn't perceive that there was a suggestion that there was something. It's always great to hear from the lead author or somebody who is involved in the process because research is messy, it's complicated. And things change just as long as we have an explanation of why things change. I think that helps us tremendously interpreting the literature. So thank you. Chris, you've got the fifth and final one. The final question is about external validity. I absolutely love this study as an EM practitioner in Calgary. So we are about as pro-electricity as you can get. Well, I mean, Edmonton might be slightly more or slightly less than us, but we're, we're pretty darn pro-electricity in Alberta. So why do you think there is such a variation in use of electrical versus chemical-first cardioversion across Canada and maybe more worldwide as well? That's a really great question, and it has to do with the fact no one's really compared the two arms. And again, a huge part of it has to do with where you did your training, what you're comfortable with. If you haven't uh, learned, uh, let's say you've just learned to use uh, you know, procainamide, the normal thing is as soon as the patient has it, you hang up a bag and hope for the best, and half those patients are going to convert anyway. And uh, maybe it's tough to get a respiratory therapist or you don't do that many, uh, you know, solo coverage. You don't do that many, uh, you know, procedural sedations. You'd be more comfortable hanging a drug and letting the patient sit there for an hour, two hours, three hours until they convert. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if you uh, grow up in, in the West, uh, you'll notice that, you know, I, like I said, I didn't even think that as a resident that procainamide might be your first choice to me was always the rescue medication. Now, I've got an old study from... Uh, Dr. Carly Rogenstein and the senior author Z and Steele is from Academic Emergency Medicine in 2012, an international view of how recent onset atrial fibrillation is treated in the emergency department. And this is a bit older data, obviously, but, uh, you know, cardioversion is attempted at varying rates in every country, 65% in Canada, 50% in Australia and the United Kingdom, 25% in the States. And uh, pharmacologic conversion is attempted first in, in all regions, uh, and again, it's procainamide. You know, there's huge variation across different countries, and within countries, there's substantial variation as well. Now, I think that all this Canadian research in atrial fibrillation actually helps standardize care and will help standardize care internationally. A, by showing that, you know, rhythm control is a safe first option to use in these patients. You don't have to go with rate control anymore. And then hopefully in the sort of chemical first versus electrical first, this will help clinicians decide what they can uh, use and at least offer patients some evidence if a patient asks which, uh, which method they'd want to use first. Like I said, this is a, uh, you know, it's unusual that there's a ton of, that there's this much variation going not only internationally, but also intranationally with, uh, you know, in different regions of each country. An interesting phenomenon, but hopefully we can work to standardize care both in Canada and internationally. Well, I'd like to echo what Chris said about how much he liked this study because I really liked this study because it had study sites that ranged from big tertiary referral centers with all the resources to the small community hospitals where I work with no on-site cardiologists. So I thought that really helped me with the interpretation of the data. But those are the five nerdy questions. Is there anything else you want to say about your hot-off-the-press publication? 
think you pretty much covered the essential details. Uh, I'm uh, one thing I'm kind of proud of is the 30-day outcomes. That hasn't really been a traditional uh, emergency department AFib uh, issue. Looking at quality of life, one of the things when you talk to uh, people with atrial fibrillation, they're scared to travel because they might go into AFib somewhere else. It can really impact your quality of life. Like you might not want to play tennis anymore. You might be scared to do something. You know, the fact that these patients had a really good quality of life for a month afterwards is, is good. They weren't sitting around terrified that something bad was going to happen, you know, unable to carry on with their activities of daily living. They, 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 fu- they functioned very well in their life. I mean, we see these patients for hour, two hour, five hours in the emergency, but these guys have lives afterwards as well. And it has not been a traditional part of emergency department research to, to look at these long-term outcomes, but patient satisfaction was high, quality of life was high. It looks like we actually really are genuinely helping patients, and that's something that's feedback we don't often get. It's uh, very nice uh, doing that. Fantastic, Frank. That's excellent. I'm glad you made that point. Chris, do you want to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions? We agree with the author's conclusions. How about giving an SGEM bottom line? Consider implementing an electrical first rhythm control strategy for low risk patients with AFib. And can you resolve the case you presented? So after a discussion with your patient, you make a shared decision to perform synchronized electrical cardioversion as a first rhythm control strategy. And how are you going to take this information and apply it clinically? This study provides support for an electrical first rhythm control strategy in patients with uncomplicated AFib to reduce emergency department length of stay. And where are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? I would tell the patient, your heart is in an abnormal rhythm called atrial fibrillation, and it's going too fast. This is why you are feeling lightheaded and like your heart is racing. We have several safe methods to get you out of this rhythm, which include making you sleepy and giving your heart some electricity or giving you intravenous medication. The electrical method is more effective on the first attempt and will generally result in you going home one to two hours sooner than the intravenous medication. For the electricity method, we will give you an anesthetic that will make you forget the procedure in most cases. If one method doesn't work, then we generally try the other method afterward. All right, it's time for the Keener Contest, and last week's winner was Dr. Trevor Slezik, a PGY4 EM resident from Washington University in St. Louis. He found that there were 24 Nobel laureates who had done research at Washington University in St. Louis. Chris, what's the Keener question this week? This week's question is, who published the first ECG depicting atrial fibrillation? If you know the answer, then send an email to thesgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Now it's your turn, SGMers. What do you think of this episode on rhythm control in AFib? Tweet your comments using hashtag SGMHOP. What questions do you have for Frank and his team? Ask them on the SGM blog. The best social media feedback will be published in Academic Emergency Medicine. Also, don't forget, if you subscribe to AEM, you can head over to the AEM homepage and get credit. That's right, CME credits for this podcast and article. We'll put the process on the SGEM blog. Frank, thank you very much for coming on the SGEM and talking about your hot off the press publication. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, We'll see you next time, Chris, maybe for the uh, Top Gun Maverick party. Yeah, buddy, you know I'll be there. Oh, permission to buzz the tower? Negative Ghost Rider, the pattern is full. Okay, Frank, can you give us the SGEM tagline? 
Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week. Yeah.